Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, seeing as there's not much going on down here in the States, perhaps it's a good time to check in with the lives of our neighbors to the north. Toronto-based author Sachi Kuhl was in town recently for a chat with Seattle writer Lindy West. Kuhl had never been here before. She was looking forward to trying some clam chowder, for some reason, and seeing Frasier's apartment from the TV show. She'd apparently seen every episode, having watched regularly as a child with her father. West broke the bad news about where Frasier was actually filmed, and Kuhl recovered quickly from her disappointment. Sachi Kuhl is a culture writer for BuzzFeed and other publications. Her parents immigrated to Canada from India. She writes frankly and often sharply about her life experiences and opinions, and has paid the price to a frightening extent via Twitter troll harassment. Her first book is a collection of 10 essays titled, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. In it, she turns reflections on family, cross-cultural issues, gender, sexism, racism, rape culture, and body image into an alternately funny, pointed, and affecting commentary on Western culture. Sachi Kuhl read from her work and spoke to Lindy West at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on May 31st. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Seattle Public Library's Linda Johns introduces the event. We're honored tonight to have a consulate from the Office of the Consulate General of Canada. We're so impressed with how Canada supports and values writers and artists, and it is a privilege to introduce you all to Consulate Harkaran Rajasansi. Thank you, Linda, and thank you all for coming out this evening. It's wonderful to see such a great crowd. I won't keep you from the main event, but I just wanted to highlight a few things. My name is Harkiran, as Linda said. I represent Canada here in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. Um, we cover a lot of important issues between our two countries. One of my favorites are the arts and cultural industries and supporting our Canadian artists and writers who come down to the United States to promote their work. Um, it's a real pleasure to be able to introduce Sachi Cole tonight. I'd like to um, also provide a, a modified quote from, from her site where she says that uh, Sachi Cole is proving to be one of the finest writers of her generation. This fact should not be questioned. And uh, after reading a lot of her work in the last uh, couple of weeks, including her wonderful new book of essays, I would tend to agree. Um, so I will leave it at that. And just one last point. This year is Canada's 150th anniversary. Happy sesquicentennial Canada. Thank you. Hello, I'm Karen Maeda Allman from Elliott Bay Book Company. So thanks so much for coming tonight to see two women who have been setting the internet on fire. So tonight we have Sachi Cole and Lindy West. Sachi Cole is based in Toronto and is a culture writer for BuzzFeed. You've seen her work on Jezebel and The New Yorker in a newspaper such as The New York Times, The Globe and Mail, and of course you've seen her on Twitter. So most people here have seen her on Twitter, right? Okay. 
She's here to promote her new book, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter, a hilarious and thoughtful collection of essays written from the point of view of a first-generation Canadian woman with roots and parents from Kashmir. She takes on topics such as family and those ideas and customs that don't really translate so well after you've located yourself thousands of miles away from your parents' cultures. Also about losing your language, colorism, a rape culture, Twitter trolls, and so much more. I think it's essential reading. And I'd say it's about time for a voice like hers. So um, also, um, after she um, does a, a, a little talk at the podium, there will be an onstage conversation um, with uh, Seattle's own Lindy West. Um, and her work, of course, figures on pop culture, social justice, humor, and body image. She's a culture writer for GQ Magazine and GQ.com. And also, um, her articles appear frequently in The Guardian. And her book is Shrill. And as Linda said, we do have copies of both Shrill and also One Day We'll All Be Dead, None of This Will Matter at the Elliott Bay Table. So um, after the conversation with Lindy, then there'll be an opportunity for audience questions. So with that, um, thanks for coming. And please join me in welcoming Sashi Kool. You guys, the fucking consulate is here. And I told my dad, um, if you've read the book or if you have the book and you've looked at it, or if you follow me on Twitter, you might be very familiar with my father who's extremely invested in my life, unfortunately, um, about the consulate coming. And he like didn't care and I was like, it's a brown lady. And then he cared, like big time. So that's something that happened today. So I'm gonna read a little something from a chapter called Size Me Up. There are obviously many serious themes in this book, but I'm going to read about my garbage body. Around the age of 10, I gained a significant amount of weight, the kind that family members stop referring to as cute or baby weight and start referring with a heavy sigh. There was, in reality, nothing wrong with my weight, but I was too young and too insecure, a lethal combination, to know that. So I did what I thought I should. I hid my rapidly developing body. I started wearing bum equipment sweatpants and long sleeve heat locking tops. Both items were perhaps utilitarian in the winter, but tended to turn my person into a walking, sweating radiator by June. Shopping was my mother's game. She would return from stores that sold clothes exclusively for hikers with a wagon full of wool socks and dungarees for her puberty-stricken daughter. Nothing I owned fit anymore, and I didn't trust that buying the right clothes would make me feel better about the way my hips had widened, or my arms had softened, or my neck now had ridges running across it as if I were an old tree and these were my rings. At the time, I claimed my style was some kind of feminist protest. I don't need to look like every other girl. Why should I have to dress up when guys can wear whatever they want? That's my feminist voice, by the way. <laughs> I listened to Avril Lavigne and recited the lyrics as if they were my own thoughts. I watched CNN because I didn't want to be a frivolous teen. I had crushes on adult men like Jon Stewart and Rahm Emanuel. 
and hot dads at the mall with salt and pepper hair and palm pilots. I didn't know what a palm pilot was. But in truth, I just didn't know if I was allowed to look like a cute girl, if my body was bigger than the other girls I knew, if my skin was darker, if I was more sullen than sugar. I hid in muted drapery, hoping no one would notice, or better yet, they would assume I was just a very tough, genderless sphere. This crumbled by the time I was 11. A well-meaning woman at my mother's Jenny Craig meeting told her what a precious son she had. I was wearing a baseball cap with the Coca-Cola logo emblazoned on the front, a red puffy vest and gray sweatpants. It was July. It was embarrassing to be mistaken for a boy. Not a girl with masculine tendencies, not a girl tra rejecting traditional gender roles, just a boy. I was being defined by my clothing instead of transformed by it. Coincidentally, this was the year I discovered Lord of the Rings weenie Orlando Bloom, a crush that would last 24 months and spawn more than one fan club, my brother being the only member and by force. Boys don't like girls in promotional hats, and I wanted boys to like me. So I started growing my hair out and asked my mom to take me shopping. I wanted to dress like a girl, and not just a pretty girl, but a hot girl. That poor definition of whatever makes a woman worth looking at, worth touching, at least from a teenage boy's perspective. Clothes, the right clothes, could make me, even me, very hot. Unfortunately, my tastes differed drastically from my mother's. My interests were swaying towards t-shirts with hilarious and racy sayings paired with elastic waistbanded jeans. I wanted to try on belly tops and white belts with big silver bolts. My mom suggested matching stretchy pants and long sleeve tops with watercolor wolves standing near the reflection of the moon in a calm river. <laughs> T-shirts with little frogs posed on 3D lily pads flowing Indian tunics that I could tell were clearly not English clothes, as we called them, ones in jewel tones and gold stitching that screamed, my mother is an immigrant and we only eat off metal plates. She'd hold them up and say, they look so nice, and I'd say, they're itchy, and she'd say, how? And I'd furiously rub the sequins against my skin until I flash red bumps and then say, see? A particular fight between my mother and me broke out in the women's aisle at Walmart the summer before I started middle school when I found a royal blue shirt with running across, if it weren't for boys, I wouldn't even go to school. <laughs> this was a completely false statement for me to support. I wrote extra credit English essays, joined the school paper, and wept for weeks when my grade six yearbook failed to print my future goals next to my school photo, worried everyone would think I was a purposeless hack at 12. I was afraid of the boys who went to my school, all of whom did not like me and were prone to calling me a faggot. But I felt that if I got this shirt, I could transform myself at my new school. I would be cool and elusive and one of those types people refer to as chill. What does that mean? I still don't know, but I want it, even now. I forever aspire to be chill. I had the whole scene planned out. I would walk into school wearing that shirt, along with a set of earrings from Claire's, the one shaped like lightning bolts to really bring out the yellow in the lettering. 
I pair it with my floor-length patchwork denim skirt with the little Union Jack in the pocket. I did not know the flag's origin, but it's not like there was a class that would teach me like about flags and stuff. Then I would encircle my eyes with thick black liner all the way around, elevating myself from mousy girl to sex raccoon. <laughs> Graham, the boy I had the hots for, would really see me for the first time. Not as a girl he once tackled in flag football, but as the woman he once tackled in flag football. I would pull my glasses off and the transformation would be complete. Who is this girl, everyone would ask. It's me, I'd say. The crowd would gasp in amazement and I would have a million friends and be very thin and rich and filled with an embarrassment of sexual energy for a 13-year-old. Choices, sir. Choices. While I was concocting this elaborate fantasy in Walmart, Walmart, my mom was explaining to me why she wouldn't be buying the shirt. That's inappropriate, she whispered, as if the words themselves were sinful. My mother had a tendency to slip into outrage and shock as a first reaction to anything. And the lower her voice dropped, the more she was disappointed in me. I could barely hear her. It's not even long enough to cover your tummy, she said, pulling me towards a row of long sleeve t-shirts that said glam in different colors. I still have that shirt, by the way. It has not aged well. We settled on a short sleeve number with glittery navy vinyl lettering that proclaimed, I'm not perfect, but I'm so close it scares me. Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. Even though I love the shirt, so clever, so quietly smart, so, dare I say it, elegantly subversive, I raged at my mom for weeks. She claimed that shirts like the royal blue one were intended for women like my 20-year-old cousin and not for pudgy middle schoolers. But what 20-year-old is shopping at the girls' section at Walmart, mother? It got worse a few days after classes started when my arch nemesis, Stephanie, wore the shirt I'd wanted getting an obscene amount of negative male attention. I stomped all the way home that afternoon. That was supposed to be my negative male attention. <laughs> this thinking, finding an outfit that I believe will revolutionize my existence, is a repeated one of failure throughout my life. There was the pair of faux leather red peep toe pumps in 2006, the high-waisted oatmeal-colored wide leg trousers of 2008, the black sequin bolero of 2009, the skin-tight cerise knockoff Hervé Leger bandage dress, this New Year's Eve is gonna be amazing of 2011 that I still own and pull out of my closet now and then to remind myself of what I am not. I still remember my favorite outfit from the 10th grade, a mint green V-neck lace top, dark wash bootcut jeans, and black and teal butterfly Mary Jane kitten heels. The butterflies were 3D. I wore that outfit for every major occasion. When I wanted Drew to ask me out, he did not. When I wanted to ace a math test, I did not. When I wanted to be noticed by an attractive guest speaker, I was not. Despite this piss poor batting average, I felt a renewed sense of potential every time I put it on. Today, something good has to happen. 
So nearly a decade after that outfit stopped being a staple in my wardrobe, I yet again fell into the trap of believing cloth could be revolutionary. Walking through Toronto's financial district, I passed a clothing chain known for simple skirts, blouses, blazers, and a terrible roll-on perfume that burned. It was also the second and last retail job I ever had when I was 19 and living in my cousin Angie's basement beside her table saw, which she used to make her hand-carved wizard wands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should, I, yeah, that was a weird one. I should have probably examined that. I was at least 20 years younger than the clientele that came into the store. I hardly made enough money to buy the $90 cocktail casual dresses on the rack, and I managed to be 20 minutes late for every shift. I wasn't fired exactly, but when I left my section of the store to reapply my $4.50 lipstick and a drunk man managed to swipe $800 of merchandise from the store without being detected, I nobly offered not to return. But that was years ago. And I felt a twinge of self-satisfaction in going back as a customer. So much of my life had changed since I worked there. I wasn't a teenager anymore. I had my own apartment. I had paid all my taxes at least once. I bought shoes in real stores instead of waiting for my older cousins to tire of theirs. The store was little more than a reminder of how far I had progressed in a few short years. Help me with these buttons, shop girl, I imagine saying. For I am an important woman. I own a microwave. <laughs> that said, the real reason I entered the store was far more practical than ego. It was the dead of summer, some 35 degrees Celsius. I don't know how to convert that, and I'm not going to help you. You're going to have to figure that out yourself. And I am a soggy woman even in the most forgiving conditions. Standing outside the store, I was already sweating in new and interesting parts of my body, and I knew that if I didn't get into a building colder than the surface of the, sun, of the moon, my makeup would start bleeding and I'd look like a wax figurine left in a clay oven. I walked in, relishing the blast of cool air, and immediately saw Leah. She had trained me when I worked there, but was now the store manager and still as tall and stately and glamorous as I remembered her being when I was 19. Best of all, she did not seem to recognize me. I rummaged through sales rack after sales rack, talking, tossing aside shirts that I knew would cling in the wrong places, colors that would bring out the sallow tint of my complexion, and the one-piece jumpers, because inexplicably, adult women are still wearing jumpers. I don't know how they pee. <laughs> I was older, more mature. I had learned some important lessons, mostly about peeing. But like most of my shopping trips, I grew frustrated quickly. There was little in my size, and the few things that were listed as an eight or a 10 were really cut for someone who was a four or a six. Just the thought of forcing my wide hips through trousers or my bolder shoulders through a t-shirt felt like more pain than it was worth. And yet on my way out, I found it, the thing. A black and white fall skirt that I knew would look perfect on me. It was in soft wool, but in a slimming cut and hit just below the knee. It would be perfect for work or, or maybe going out after work or maybe I would wear it with a big floppy hat and a trench coat at a Parisian cafe waiting for a parcel from a mysterious stranger. <laughs> I am Carmen Sandiego in this fantasy like I am in most of my non-sexual, non-food related fantasies. I held my breath, turning it over to see the price and the size. It was on sale, and it was an eight. 
it's happening, I thought. The item, the big item that changes the way I dress and thereby changes the way I am as a person. It's not just a skirt, it's the entry fee for a better existence. I would exude a new confidence, it would smooth out the wrinkles in my body, I it would hide all the ways I have disappointed and failed people in the past. While wearing it, women would approach me and beg me to tell them where I got it. I would act coy and wink to the camera. In this version of the fantasy, I am in like a commercial. And I'd say something like, I'll never tell, or just something I picked up. People would see me on the street shoving fistfuls of Teddy Grahams in my mouth on the way to the podiatrist, and they'd think, that lady really's got her life together. <laughs> that is a lot of pressure for something on sale for $24.99. Canadian, which is like $8 here. I'm so poor. Aaliyah led me into a changing room, complimenting me on my choice. I locked the door and looked at myself in the mirror, taking a deep breath. This could be it. I peeled the shorts off my sweating skin and stepped into the skirt. It slid up my body, resting on my waist, and I pulled a zipper up towards the Lord. It didn't just fit. No, it did more than that. It melded to my body. It was beautiful as if it had been cut specifically for me to mask and smooth and elevate. I would be better in this skirt. The dream was alive. I had the all-knowing smile. My hair was suddenly more luxurious. I felt thinner, more acceptable. I was a better woman. Girls who had been mean to me in high school would see me in this skirt and think, is that Saatchi? And I'd be like, you bet it is, you dumb bitch. And then I'd punch all their boyfriends. <laughs> I haven't... I haven't thought that one out as much as the others, so you're going to have to bear with me. Conflated imaginings aside, I did look pretty good. I walked out of the changing room to vamp in front of people paid to tell me I look great. The skirt was a little warm for the summer, but who cares? I'd wear it when fall came. I did one more spin in front of Aaliyah and her coworkers before feeling a thick droplet of sweat fall from my brow onto my eyelash. I was overheating in my perfect skirt, so I headed back to the changing room. My hands were sweating too much to grasp the zipper in the back, so I wrapped a t-shirt around my fingers to get a grip, but it would not budge. I sucked in, gathering the fabric, and tried to tug the zipper down. No luck. I struggled like this for a good 15 minutes, the changing room lights feeling more like an interrogation lamp, sweat pooling in the dimples above my ass, my hair matted on my face. I had fallen into this trap before, so many times. Years before this, I went through a phase of buying clothes only from vintage stores, beautiful dresses and skirts that required real care and attention that I wasn't willing to give to another person, never mind a chiffon gown. They had no elastic, bled color wherever you sat, with zippers that rusted and fell apart like rotting teeth. My favorite purchase, though, was a cocktail dress. It was a simple blood red shift that came with a layer that slipped on top, a long peplum type that made my waist look really small. I wore it too often, too many places, paired with irrational brown heels. I wore it to school with my hair done and red lipstick, as if at any moment someone would rush into my JRN 121 class and say, help, I'm a very wealthy lawyer and I need an extremely well-dressed young woman to join me on my yacht for a party that might have some influence on making me partner. Also, I'm looking for a wife to politely ignore but who may spend my money freely and maintain multiple quiet affairs with my handsome coworkers. You look ironed, are you interested? But I didn't know how to care for the dress. 
It had been made in the 50s for a woman an inch or two thinner than me, so I was already testing the tensile strengths of the seams. I hand washed it in cold water. Isn't that what you do with delicate fabric? The dress bleeding out its red color, fading it slightly. But it also shrank somehow, now only reaching halfway down my thigh. It was too much for school. Oh, now it's too much. But fine for any other occasion. Yes, it was so tight that my, on my ass and my hips that I couldn't sit down in it. But that just meant I'd wear it to run errands. When my cell phone broke and I needed to get it repaired, I wore my favorite dress and brown heels to the mall. Unfortunately, we can't repair any phones that might have been dropped in liquids or foods, and I can see some marinara on the headphone jack is what I ended up hearing that day. But I felt the dress tear right between my butt cheeks. There was no seam there, just a lot of tension. <laughs> but back in the changing room, I was reaching peak anxiety. I tried pulling the skirt over my head. My waist is smaller than my shoulders, a problem I did not calculate until I almost got my arms stuck in the skirt as well. Then I considered tearing the zipper and telling Aaliyah that it broke while I was trying to disrobe. But I didn't want to ruin such a good item. Maybe it was salvageable. Maybe I could still be the woman I felt I could be. My only options were to ask Aaliyah to help me out of the skirt or to wear it out of the store making me the only idiot sweating in a wool skirt in 30-degree heat who was also handing out pamphlets that read, Have You Made Peace With Your God? Sometimes zippers move if you rub a candle on them. I could run outside and say, Does anybody have a candle? It is an emergency. <laughs> that would be fine. I considered a secret third option in that changing room, one where I would type out a quick suicide note on my phone and then use a fabric belt to fashion a trendy noose. But whatever the decision, I needed to make it fast, since soon my whole body would be covered in my salty, sticky shame sweat. I left the changing room and tapped Lee on the shoulder, hoping she wouldn't notice my entire face was glistening. That does really look great on you, she said, giving me that wide smile I had seen her give so many customers before. I'm stuck, I said. I turned around my rear towards her as she tried the zipper herself. She tried bunching the fabric to get a better grip. Suck in, she said, pulling more and more of the skirt towards her. She called over her coworker to help. She too could not manage. It's so weird, she said. It's like the skirt is caught on nothing. No, nothing except my own ego and humiliation. I flew too close to the sun with this one. A third employee came over and tried to use a pin to pull the zipper's teeth apart. She spent a full minute just shaking my hips as if she was trying to will me to a smaller size and the skirt would just slide off. And admittedly, a minute may not sound like a lot of time, but ask a loved one to shake your lower half vigorously for an entire minute and then tell me how long those 60 seconds feel like. The employees turned to each other and discussed what to do next. We could rip out the zipper and then sew it back on. Do you think she can pull it over her head or, oh, no. Her shoulders are too wide. What if we just cut her out? That last one is the ultimate nightmare. If you are a woman in the audience, you know this to be true. The possibility of getting stuck in a garment at a store where the employees have to cut you out is the beginning of the end of your life. It is like the saddest version of a C-section where the baby is just a half-naked lady with no dignity. Yeah, Aaliyah said to her cohorts, grab the scissors, we have to cut her out. 
It was like listening to three surgeons decide you needed to be sliced in half, thinking you're unconscious and can't hear them. Two women held the skirt to my hips, pressing me into the wall of the changing room hallway. I could see my reflection in the mirror, my face now drenched with sweat. From the outside, I looked like I was being hazed by a group of women far too old to be welcoming in new pledges. But all I was focused on was not exposing my entire lower half to whoever had walked into the store during this ordeal. I said a silent goodbye to my beloved skirt, the garment that was supposed to make me better, but just reminded me that no, you are what you are, even if you remember to iron. Okay, hold still, Aaliyah said. This was an intimate moment for us. Her face was closer to my butt than anyone had been in like hours. We were sisters now. While the other two women flanked me and held the skirt up, Aaliyah pulled the fabric away from my body and started making small cuts. I don't wanna cut you, she said. But at that point, I welcomed any distraction from the sweat gathering on my back, like tiny resplendent pools of my greatest fear come to life. The sound that's made when one cuts a perfectly useful item of clothing is almost painful, especially when it's one you've fallen in love with. All those hems and seams and stitches destroyed so easily, it's the same feeling I imagine that would come if you baked an ice to cake only to drop it on the way to a birthday. But the sound that's made when someone, say, cuts an item of clothing they weren't supposed to cut is criminal. It's the quietest slap in the face you will ever feel. So when she made her final cut, I turned to Aaliyah to thank her. Maybe I would make a joke about how we had worked together, how I had let all that merchandise just walk right out of the store, and here I was doing it again. But all the color had drained from her face. She had sliced right through my underwear, <laughs> leaving me exposed like either a confused surgery patient or a very physically confident crazy person. I mean, I'm guessing it was an honest mistake on her part. I was wearing one of those 1999-esque whale tails that were popular amongst high school girls trying to attract boys with the forbidden fruit of tiny underpants. It wasn't so much clothing as it was thickly woven black floss hanging out inside the crevices of my garbage body. Aaliyah wordlessly ushered me back into the changing room, then gave me the scissors, saying I could cut myself out further if I needed to. I tore the skirt right in half, looking at what was hanging off of me in the mirror. One hip wrapped in an elastic band like a still raw roulade, the other naked except for a thick thread swinging purposely by my side. I started to get dressed, trying to see if I could tie my underwear back together or maybe cinch it with the hair elastic I had around my wrist. Instead, I opted to just stuff myself back into my denim shorts. I handed Aaliyah the remains of the skirt and the scissors, apologizing for destroying a perfectly good item of clothing. Oh, it's okay, she said, it happens, though she did not clarify to whom else it had happened. <laughs> I bought that trendy noose belt to compensate. And then, of course, as I shuffled out of the store, I heard Aaliyah proclaim with great zeal, oh my God, I just remembered where I know her from. The nightmare was over, but I still had to sulk home in a heat wave my clothes soaked from sweat, my underwear hanging by a single thread. And if you have never experienced the sensation of your naked labia rubbing up against freshly washed denim, 
as you maneuver through a subway car with broken air conditioning, you have had more than your fair share of luck in this life. Thanks, guys. That was amazing. Thank you Thanks. so much. Is, this on? Um, is it? Hello? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Hi. 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 That's it. Have a good night, everyone. Um, no, uh, I'm so glad that you're here in Seattle. Thanks. Um, I hear that you've never been here before. I've never been here at all. I haven't really seen much of the West Coast of the States generally. But yeah. you had a special experience today. <laughs> Which you all probably already know. Um, you had clam chowder for the first time. Uh, first of all, I think it's pronounced chowder. <laughs> but yes, I did. I had, a, I, had a, uh, I had a chowder with bacon in it. How was it? It was excellent. It was excellent chowder. How did you find the texture of the clam? Because I have an issue with it. Also, sometimes... I'm glad that I didn't tell you this before you yeah. had your chowder. Uh-huh. Sometimes there's a little sand in the clam. Oh, I didn't find it sandy. I enjoyed the texture of the clam. Oh, good. There was no sand in I yours? I mean, I feel like the texture is also taken over by the texture of the potato. Yeah. Which true. is its own kind of sandiness. That's true. This is what the talk is going to be. I'm just going to talk about food. I have lots of food opinions. I would be happy to talk to For you about example, food. For example, avocado, gross. Ooh. Bad. Wow. You Weird. know what else? Pie. Disgusting. I can get with that. Pie's what? bad. I mean, apple pie is fine. No, hate it. Worst pie. What? A Worst very... pie, America. I don't like it. No, a horrible tangy berry Hot pie. Hot stewed fruit. Bad. Bad. I don't get it. That's ridiculous, but that's fine. Someone once told me a rumor that apple pie was invented by a Canadian, and it really upset me. <laughs> like, that don't would... put that on me. That would be a good punishment for you. I know. We already have a lot. Horrible opinions. I can't take any more. Um, I think lemon meringue is the worst pie. Sorry. Meringue. All, all, listen, all pies that are not savory are bad. Okay, I'm not going to even get involved You can do with that. that what you will. It's obviously irrational, but... Um, listen, I don't, like, I don't think a lot of brown people eat pie. You know, we have condensed milk. We just go and get cans of condensed milk and drink them. See, there was like a knowing yes. Who said that? Someone said that. They know. Okay, I've derailed this. I've ruined it. But you do know a lot about Seattle. <laughs> I know one. Because I know two things now. I learned today that you are a Frasier super fan. I have seen every episode of Frasier. So I was. So why? <laughs> First of all. How dare you? That is an excellent show. That is prestige television. Like, you know, go fuck yourself with The Sopranos and all that garbage. I would watch Frasier for the rest of my life. Excellent plots, really bad acting, everyone's white. It's exactly what I want. But I was raised by TV, and so the block on Thursdays was, uh, I think it was Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier. And my dad would just sort of sit with me, and that's what we'd watch. 
So I've seen every episode, and I'm kind, I showed up, and I was like, okay, where's his apartment? <laughs> like, there's no sign. I or... am so sorry to tell you this. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure that they made that show in Los Angeles. I will leave. <laughs> like, I will leave the city. Um, okay, how about this? How about, how about, how about, I can't say it. I've ruined it. No, it's fine. Um, how about fuck, Mary, kill. Oh, my God. Frasier. Yeah. Niles and the dad. Oh, my. Oh, I thought you were going to say the dog and I got I really stressed it. out. Did you hear? I paused for like a Because I was second. like, God, that's tough. I mean, I do a lot to the dog, so I don't really know. Um, that joke did not land with you guys. You're very sensitive <laughs> about that dog. What was it? Frazier, Niles, and the... What was the dad's name? John. What was it? Martins. That lady knows. Um, wow. I would I would marry Niles because he seems very pliant. Clearly. I would kill Frazier because he sucks. <laughs> and then I would uh, go to town on the dad. Yeah. Really. Give him the best What's five that? minutes of his life. That's me being generous, by the way. <laughs> um, all right. So, oh, so I wanted to talk to you about, I, I first became aware of you when you posted a very rude thing on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that someone other than a white man should have a job. Yeah. So that was out of line. <laughs> you know what? It went really well. And I never faced any consequences whatsoever for oh, that. Congrats. And everyone was like, y you know what? I agree. And then I won the priest prize. Congratulations. Yeah. I feel like we should, instead of, um, as much as I, I would love to just talk We should probably tell them you, what I what said. Do you want to give people some background <laughs> yeah. on your cool so, life? So um, this was two years ago, but we're still talking about it because it's like a thing. Sorry, that no, it's I not your fault. No, it's like, a th I, it's like honestly. Like, I listen. love it when white men are horrible. I, ha I, I really want to talk to you about it. It's so my, this is what I have instead of pie. I just eat white men. <laughs> but I was working as an editor at the time and I was looking for writers for the publication I was working for and I tweeted that I was looking for primarily people who are non-white and non-male. And so then everyone was like, mm, white genocide, I don't like that. And then it kind of went away from there and I had no control over it and I'm still talking <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was re, re I was refreshing my memory on the kerfuffle. Oh, yeah. And, like, you didn't even say, white men not allowed to email me. You know what my favorite one was? Was when I sent that tweet, somebody replied with a photo that, of, like, like, an old, I don't know, an old photo of, I guess, an employment posting that said, no Irish. <laughs> and I was like... Yes! That is the same <laughs> thing. I'm so glad you told me. Great. We agree. Seriously, though, so, okay, so white men, uh, what are we going to do? Like, what do we do with them? I don't know, what? man. I thought, I, I don't know. I don't and know, I mean I that, know. that sounds like a joke question, but seriously, though, like, what, like, everything's broken. White male mediocrity has um, seized the throat of earth and is just ripping it out. So what are we going to do? I feel like it's evolving into this new kind of monstrosity now, where, like, first they're just bad, like, they're just bad. And then they go to, like, this sort of fake wokeness where they think that they've got all the answers and then they start condescending to you. That's where I live now. I got a lot of white dudes who want to be like, you know what? I just think people would appreciate your message if you were kinder. And it's like, 
you know what? I also agree. Please climb up my butthole. <laughs> it's very warm there. You'll love it. You'll love it. See? How is that not kind? I don't know. I said, I said you please climb up my butthole. Right? I mean, I didn't like, you don't have to do it, but I thought it was like a polite offering. I just don't know like what we're supposed to do because clearly this, clearly, you know, um, disparities in uh, race and gender uh, are killing us all. But you're not allowed to even say, hey, maybe my little website could publish <laughs> like some, some funny stories about the life of, well, I mean. Or literally anything. Or literally anything. Anything. By, I mean, so you can't address it sort of broadly. You can't be no. like, hmm, whiteness seems to be a problem because yeah. people lose their minds. Uh-huh. And you can't address it proactively, like, okay, well, I'm going to use my position to try to elevate the voices of maybe some people who don't usually get heard. Uh, and then, or if you try, uh, like, if you, get, if you get exasperated and you are a little bit um, honest, then people are like, mm, Not my cup of tea. Yeah, well, I would, I, I would be against racism but but you're so mean you're a little abrasive so yeah. like where are we where do we end up what do we do i don't know man like the discourse here is so fucking weird like i was watching all day today people were upset that i think it was like hillary clinton wouldn't take enough credit for losing the election like everyone was talking about that today online and it's like okay yeah she lost but is this really what you want to fucking talk about like it's been a while I just, I don't, I don't know how to make people examine their own garbage. I feel like it is going to be my life's work. Yeah. But I, I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I feel like I convert one dumb dumb every five months, which is not a average. Yeah, I know. I, I feel the same way. It's like, because you can get through to people if you just say the same thing over and over, over again 10,000 times. Over and over times. and over again. Yeah. Then they email you and you answer it and then they oh, email back. Yeah, <laughs> see, I got in a trap where I was answering emails that I was getting because oh. some of them did change their minds just because they're so terrified that you're real and that you've answered the email. And they're like, oh, God, it has breasts. And then they <laughs> panic and then, like, it's a whole thing. That's actually true. Yeah. Um, so... As a person who has, uh, like me and like any other uh, woman or person of color uh, or, uh, you know, any marginalized person who works in the media or exists or has a Twitter account, you have experienced a lot, a high volume. That's such a long list of, like, yeah. here are all the ways you're going to die. Well, and you know what? It's just another... Am I allowed to swear? We're not, like, oh, live I already on did. the radio, I mean, right? I don't know. It's just Wait, another can we fucking not? way that we have to dance around shitty straight like don't oh, don't say shitty straight white dude not not all of us sorry i'm sorry for i mean like i'm not sorry because you it's important some some of us planted a tree this. this weekend some of us what this is a dumb joke i don't oh. want to say it again now i failed all i'm did that was Fine. really bad it. of you me took it as away. moderator okay. to talk over your joke <laughs> and, um but anyway um so you've you've experienced a high volume of of twitter harassment and then by extension um, this is the same for me. Like, I end up, I've spent the last five years, like, writing about Twitter. Like, that's my job now. Have you experienced that same thing? Like, I feel really resentful that the inter- that Twitter and the internet in general have become my beat. Because, like, that's not one of my interests. 
Like, I barely like the internet. And I have to do interviews about it. I have to, like, people are like, so, Lindy, how, how can we re-engineer Twitter using code of computer code? Like, I, then I'm, I don't know. Like, what do we do to fix Twitter? Um, so I guess my question is, have you had that same experience? And also, uh, like, what would you rather be talking about? Like, what actually interests you? Okay, well, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm the Canadian you. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's, like, so flattering to no, me. No, it's not. Oh. <laughs> you don't want that. Why? You don't want that life. But it's because, like, so Canada's not very big. First of all, we all say Canada like it's, like, one big town. <laughs> but Toronto, which is a city, if you don't know that, I know you guys don't learn a lot about us. We're right up there. Uh, is, I mean, there's not a lot of people. It's 35 million people. And you guys have like, what, three, 350? Jesus Christ, it's too much. But anyway, look, I mean, it's so, it's so small. So then what ends up happening is something happens to anybody and it becomes sort of the only thing that we can talk about. And we also don't think like we need to find any other people for it. So this also happens in terms of like diversity hiring in Canada, especially in media, is they, they're like, we got one brown lady, end of list. Oh yeah, do end, you want to end of list? Do you want to talk about that thing that happened recently with the? I sure can. <laughs> Please. Um, there's a thing that happened. Uh, I think it's about two weeks ago now, uh, where a bunch of very prominent, uh, high-level media editors and executives were uh, tweeting about how they were going to put together a collection plate of sort. They were going to gather money for an appropriation prize. So it would be who could best culturally appropriate in their writing. They did this at 11.45 on a Thursday night uh, when I guess they thought we were all sleeping? Like, I don't know. I don't think they care. The I don't think they, you know, they just didn't give a shit. Um, and it was uh, the worst. And then ever. It was like a sarcastic backlash to yeah. legitimate criticisms. Yeah. Of cultural somebody had somebody had written for this other magazine about how uh, he wanted he believed in an appropriation prize. It was very dumb, and it was so dumb that he he quit because he knew it was stupid. So then all these ding dongs were like, "I can't believe this guy got ran out." And it's like, "Do you understand how quitting works? Like nobody did this to him." And then it kind of just snowballed from there and turned into like this it, very emblematic of what's wrong with the country. I was. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, it is, um, and it's, and this is, you know, less so because I'm a, I'm a white lady, but I do always feel. Um, Congratulations on that, by yeah. the way. Sounds great. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, what do you say to congratulations? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Congratulations to me. Yeah. But um, you know, I, I always feel this. It's usually with men, I guess, because you know my my identity is you know, um, as a woman and as a feminist who writes on the internet, this is where this comes up. But I always um, feel, I just, it's like you don't know who to trust. Because people, people like to talk a big game about being um, progressive and being, you know, one of the good white people and being woke or whatever. Or one of the good men, you know, I support women, I, am, I have a mom, I can't, uh. um, Yeah, it's like, I've never hit my mom. You're like, cool. <laughs> um, and I, when things like that happen, 
it just it makes it makes me feel so paranoid where it's like oh all so all of you have been thinking this oh yeah this whole time yeah you've been holding these really important powerful jobs I'm sure claiming over and over again that there are no uh, there is no discrimination there's no money there's no time there's no money we for have no positions we've already filled them. There's no audience for that kind of content. And how dare you suggest that we're prejudiced, that there's any kind of systemic um, discrimination going on. And then you find out, because they're, you know, they actually have such a low-level um, comprehension of the issue that they, oh, feel just fine, like, doing that in public yeah. on Twitter, um, where it can be screen-grabbed forever. Which is what I did. By you. <laughs> But I mean, it's like that, that was like a moment of, it was like four or five people who had within about 50 minutes gathered $3,500 of their personal wealth for this dumb thing. So if you can do that, why don't you give it to an indigenous person to write a thing? Like if you, if you are willing to throw your money around for this bullshit, I don't see why you can't actually use it for something positive. Because they don't care. Yeah. I mean, it's literally they, they raised do not money care. to give to a white person for being racist the best. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess they need more. So I guess, so like, how do you deal with that? Um, like, how do you, you, you don't know who to trust. Like, how do you? I trust no one. Right. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm very paranoid and I'm mad all the time. It's really doing wonders for my uh, wrinkles on the forehead. I feel really good and no, energized and youthful. Don't even talk to me about wrinkles on the forehead. 26 that... years old. I am getting, it's fine. I don't, I'm embracing it. It's wow. fine. I, I shouldn't, wow. this is such a bad road to go down. I <laughs> um, got dark real fast. <laughs> no, I just noticed the other day that I, I have like a. You were talking of, about a skincare routine recently. That yeah, you had changed up I your tried skincare routine. to have a skincare. It looks great. You look glowing. Well, I, thank you. I haven't done it in like a month. You but, look um, Great. I'm sure it was those two weeks of serums. I look young because I'm mad. You are young. Yeah, but I'm not forever. That's, I <laughs> this just want to ask you. So when I was 26, you're 26? Yeah. So I For started, now. For now. For now. <laughs> yeah. Don't get used to it, sweetie. 27's coming. Yeah, okay. Um, I like it. That is actually how condescending people are when that's, they're older. I mean, I don't it's really, like, that's uh, fine. You probably don't understand about the um, progression of time. I don't, I don't mind it, because I feel like then I can do it later. I'll take it. I'll uh, bank it for later. But, um, oh, so when, so I started writing professionally when I was 25, and then I was, so I was, when I was 26, I was, like, writing little, like, little, like, movie reviews and, like, little theater reviews in the local paper. It was a great job. But it's like, looking back on it, it is mortifying <laughs> because I wrote things that were very bad. And I, it was like, I, I, could go, I can look back and I can see myself growing up on the page in public, in print forever, and on the internet, like, double forever. And um, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> like, you're, you're, you're so poised and your writing is so mature and beautiful and smart. And I was just wondering how you did that. <laughs> And, like, are you, do you have the same terror? Because, like, I'm terrified that people... I mean, I had, like, a really upsetting childhood, and it made me ad an adult quickly. Oh, congratulations. Is that, thank you. <laughs> no, I don't 
don't know. I mean, like, I think there's lots of stuff that I wrote that is embarrassing and bad. Like, I did, like, a, even, even on a, just a small level, like, I did a, fa- a search on my own Facebook for, like, different words I might have used when I was younger. Because I got, this is the other problem, I got Facebook when I was, like, 15. That's bad. That's a bad thing. And so I went searching, and I just looked up my name and the word retarded. What the fuck was I doing? Because you're, you know, you're 15, and you don't know, and you say these dumb things, and it was just riddled with that. And I had that anxiety of, like what did I write? Like, what did I write? And I started writing for money at, there was a, in the province I grew up in, provinces are like states. Um, There's like a governmental body that handles them. There's a, there's, I don't know how many provinces there are. That's not good. Don't tell the consulate. Um, uh, But there was like a magazine that published the work of basically mostly teenagers, teenage girls, and so I started working for them when I was 14. I am terrified of the stuff that will, if they ever like have an archive, I'm doomed. But yeah, I don't know, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of part of it, but um, I guess maybe the measurement is to make sure that you're still trying, yeah. and that if it does sort of resurface it, you're like, yikes, okay, well, I don't do that anymore, and I, I recognize why, and this is why that was wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think people live in fear of being called out as though it's some sort of death sentence. Like, if someone was like, uh, you know, oh, Lindy, um, <laughs> what is wrong with you? You know, you, um, I don't want, like I don't want to talk about Here's my, a list. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, yeah, some people might hate you forever, but it's not that hard to say, whoa, I am so I'm dumb. I am so yeah, sorry. I'm real dumb. Wow. People I, have a hard time saying they're dumb. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why either. It's great. I it's found like, it very freeing. It's like I imagine what it feels like to be like Catholic or something, where you could just get to like say, "Oh yeah, I did it," and then it's gone. Like score, right? Is that how that works? I just. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. I was raised in a godless home. I have no idea. Yeah. Hindus don't do that. But. I don't know. We just don't eat on Tuesdays and then assume it's fine. Is there... <laughs> what if I don't eat meat on Tuesdays? Great. Everything's okay. You're forgiven. I'm forgiven. <sighs> Let's see. What else did I want to talk to you about? Um, do, you, uh, do you like writing? Because <laughs> I hate it. No. No one likes it. It's disgusting. I feel like I don't trust people who like it. They're you know, liars. Like, oh, They're liars. Oh, no, they're <laughs> craft. No, first of all, this entire book was written while I watched Real Housewives of Orange County and House. Why? Because they're dumb and nothing happens. I can play it in the background and then write like 7,000 words about my vagina. So, no, I don't like it. Nothing's good about it. It's just you pulling scabs off and letting them gently heal and then peeling them off again and then letting it happen. Like, it's just a disgusting, filthy thing to do. You and I should be in jail. <laughs> I totally agree. Do you have that, um, do you do that thing that, like, <laughs> I, always, I always laugh when, like, someone will publish, you know, a writer. It'll be like, tell us about your process. And they're like, I well, love I, arise, I arise at seven, and I smell the dahlia next to my bed, and I... These people who are like, I drink nothing but coffee all day and that's what fuels me and you're like what (laughs) (laughs) no you don't (laughs) or people who are like um 
yes, I, I get up and I shower and I run five miles and I go back and I sit at my desk and I, t- I type on a typewriter or whatever and I just, I write for four hours no matter what. Like, that's my... Uh, I yeah. find that they're almost as bad as people who are like, I just did ecstasy for seven months. <laughs> and this is the book I wrote from. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> How do I get out of this conversation? I just feel like I don't trust people who ha- are disciplined and... They're liars. Yeah, right. They're liars. They're disgusting. Writers who say they have a process, marathon runners, bakers. Like, anybody who's, like, getting up before six, I don't like that. Okay, you know how all these people are like, I'm a baker, but then they're, like, like very small? What do you mean? You just bake every day? You have a baking blog and you bake cookies? And then what do you, what happens to them? I don't, I guess I, they I sell it like for money? A, literally once a year. Because if I bake, then it just goes in, which is fine. I'm, like, happy to own it and whatever, but, like, I can't just... Create no, I don't cookies. get that either. I assume they're just very sad. That's what I want. I just want them to be upset. That's fine. <laughs> we, this is our show. We can build our own universe. Yeah. We're all miserable. Um, but yeah, I, uh, so my, my process is like, um, so there has to be a deadline where someone, where like my li- someone will ruin my life if I don't meet it. Yeah. And then I wait... <sighs> until so like if it's a short form like a column I wait until 45 minutes before. right before mm-hmm. and then I lie on my side like this sort of like a like a recl- like, like a bed? sphinx like that yeah, yeah. Like, yes or like on the couch usually yeah so I'm yep. like on yep. my side yep. up yep. on one and then I'm like this like have you the- tried when you lie in bed like this and you put it you put the oh, laptop yeah. on your tits and I wear glasses and so I have to take yeah, them exactly. off and then I have to put it really close really close like that. Yeah, I totally do that. But then my legs start to fall asleep. Yeah. So you have to stop. So then I'll do that. And How then... long should I stay in this position? <laughs> oh, like half my book was written in that yeah. position. And then it'll be like 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll be sort of, I'll wake up for, for like seven minutes and like, and like write a hundred words. Yeah. And then, and, then, um, and then I'll have like some gummy bears, which I don't even like, but any sort of just a food a food a chewable thing yeah yeah uh and then and then i start to cry eventually like i go yep. fall into yep. a really deep yep. despair yep. yep yep look how well adjusted we are aren't you glad that you came to this i mean young people will be like how do i become a writer oh i love that question you're like don't yeah no i mean solved it <laughs> i'm always very encouraging but oh um, i tell them to do like a like get into welding or something reliable <laughs> totally like, learn to, like... We will always need plumbers. Yeah. Well, I think maybe. It's a g- Not if the... Well, what are you going to do? I'm just saying that the apocalypse is nigh. Right. I forgot where so I was. So what I Everything's terrible them, here. Yeah. No I mean, mistake. learn to ride yeah. a horse, you know? Learn to ride a horse? Okay. I mean, bow and arrow, I thought at least that's like... Yeah, from you know. horseback. Um, no, I went to the rodeo when I was in Texas on book tour and huh. I was just looking at the people and I was like, oh man, I am fucked. Like, I can't do that. I can't do anything. Like, these people were like on a horse and then they jump off the horse onto a cow. That's a very practical concern. Because I feel that way about like when I see someone do yoga real good. 
But that's not like a transferable skill. At least jumping from one horse to a <laughs> cow is good for the war. No, I'm just saying that like, you guys are definitely going to start, by the way. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. In the nuclear apocalypse, if I need like some grains or yams from the next village, tough. You know what? Yams, like, it's another thing I don't like to eat. Don't like it. Don't like a sweet starch. I just okay. want you to know. <laughs> I have a um, healthy Congratulations. List. So, let's see. Um, all right, I think we've covered uh, <laughs> we've like, run through your really list. all the most important stuff. Um, uh, you have horrible taste. Um, wow. No, I'm I'm joking. Maybe, I'm glad I know this about no, you. No, maybe the rest of the world is wrong. No, you're right. They maybe, are. Maybe That's you're my right, brand. Like all other people are wrong. Um, well, hold on. <laughs> what am I wrong about? What? Is it pie? Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I'm not even, like, a big pie fan. I prefer cake. What's good about pie? Uh, when it's hot and there's ice cream on it. Wait, and somebody yelled meld. something. What did you yell? Yeah, but you can get that in anything else. Like, it's not good enough to substantiate your hot soup fruit on top. I mean, I'm, like, almost with you is the thing. But apple the, pie is really good. It's just garbage first of all th but i mean part of it is like apples are the worst fruit so like it's hard to oh boy wow yeah okay wait rank the fruits and then we're gonna go to audience questions okay almost all fruits are bad and then i like cherries and watermelon what about i don't eat fruit i mean fruit you know that todd berry joke where he's just like fruit sucks yeah, it's just not <laughs> it's just that like, good. That's the whole joke. It's a really yeah, good joke. Yeah, it's just not that good. Yeah, fruit sucks. And um, when you're a kid, you're, mom, you're hungry, and your mom's like, have some fruit, oh. and you're like, you go fuck yourself, Mona. Like, I am not in this business. Oh, try being fat. Like, people are just like, <laughs> uh, yeah. have an apple. Yeah, and you're like, what do you think Why? is happening here? <laughs> How is that going to work? I'm hungry. I need to eat a whole chicken. <laughs> totally. Like a live chicken, I'm just going to dip it in my body and pull it out. Totally. An apple. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will, I will put peanut butter on an apple, <laughs> but the, the, the apple is the vehicle for the peanut butter. Sure, but then, like, just eat the peanut butter. Yeah. I, don't th I think sugar is bad. What? Like I just no, I mean like if in terms of like I will have it for candy or dessert, but in terms of like this fruit nonsense. Oh. Mm, doesn't that, it's just what's the point? Yeah, I mean I seeds? I, no. And like the core is disruptive? Oh, I agree. I don't like skins? Yep. I'm I'm with you on that. Uh what about <laughs> Okay, we should stop. Um, I'll literally the do library this forever. literally has closed. Okay, so um, so what about like a mango? Oh, but see, ma yeah, see, I fuck with mangoes, but okay. that's because my mother's a brown lady, and if I say that I don't, she will show up. So you will hear it. No, I like them, but honestly, okay. off, but you were on top of it, into it, I can't. Yeah, that's not <laughs> happening. Mangoes are fine. Okay. Brown women really affect their children in terms of their food taste. Like this is like I don't eat like the skin of meat because she was like, that is not what you do with it. The skin of meat? Like, you don't eat chicken skin. Like, you, put, you take it off before oh, you cook it. Oh, I'm so it. sorry. Yeah, I mean, like, I, so you know. Good. I had my first Big Mac when I was, like, 17, and I was like, what is this? They've been hiding it from me for such a long time. It was great. And then I started crying because I thought I was going to go to hell, but I didn't, so it's fine. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Um, all right, let's uh, throw it out to the crowd. Anyone have questions? <laughs> How do you follow that up, sir? Correct. Anyone have uh, fruit opinions or? No, you can you just have, ask a question. question. Yes, it's a great literature when men do it. They, they literally get to call it my struggle. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good for you. Um, Good I, for you. I mean, I had to fight um, personally. So, and I, I gave up the fight for the paperback. But for the hardcover, I was like, I want, I, I demand that this be a gender neutral cover. Like, I want it to be, uh, like, I don't want it to be, um, I don't want it to, like, have my face on it being like, you know, or, uh, you know, have, like, a martini on it, or, you know, all of the things that we do, or, like, a shoe. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to say this over and over and over, and literally, Did like... Did you just shame her into doing that? <laughs> no, no, well, so then, I, I, yeah, like I said, I gave it up for the paperback, and then I'm like, oh, my paperback's so cute, because, like, I really don't actually feel this in my heart. Um, <laughs> it was a political... <laughs> was a political move, political decision, but um, yeah, so, you know, we ended up with this, but before we got this one, it literally, like, they sent me, like, 20 comps that were, like, looked like the Sex and the City logo, and um, that's real. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just feel like to, to have a, a woman's, um, the minutia of a woman's life, and, you know, especially her, her inner life, and, uh, you know, her... Her, if it has like a woman's emotions in it, then suddenly it's this frivolous, ridiculous thing. And to have it released as something serious that is a piece of literature is um, difficult. Whereas men can be like, oh, my bona, like whatever. And it's very, it's very um, weighty and significant. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I get asked a lot about like how I made my book relatable as if I am a literal alien <laughs> and I like just learned how to speak English and I'm telling you about my world. Um, so that's annoying. But I mean, part of it, like it, it just, some of it felt like things I couldn't control. Like the cover is pink, but I like it. But I would get emails from dudes who were being like, I bought your book even though it was pink. And it's like, Congra congratulations, you've, how you've done it. How weak are you? Yeah, like, My God. How, like, do you think your dick's going to crawl into your body if you buy a pink book? Like, that was the level of discourse. Um, but also, like, I, I'm also coming from a different region where in terms of essay collections that come out in Canada generally, do you know of one? Yeah, so there you go. So it's a little different, right? Because there's just, there's not like a market saturation that sort of happens here, um, generally speaking. But um, I also like don't think it's that bad to have a product that like women first like. Like I, when I wrote it, I, I was in my head, I was like, this is for brown girls. I'm sure everybody can read it and like it, but it was sort of important to write something for an audience that I don't think gets that much, at least in that space. I certainly didn't when I was younger. Um, and then the rest is icing, pink icing. I get very upset about that. Hello? Come on. Every time I don't get a question, I'm like, we solved racism and sexism. <laughs> we did it. Yes, the lady in the... <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> the great Ijoma Oluo, everybody. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would, I would preface this by saying that, like, Canadians are also terrible with this. It is, I, I've never had an audience as hostile as, like, as Canadians, generally speaking. They are so anxious about being polite that if you say anything, they will, like, burn your house down. They just don't, they don't want to be perceived as anything other than wonderful, beautiful people, um, which I know is not a popular opinion, but tough. Um, but in terms of, like, stuff here, I mean... <laughs> I think I know what you're referring to, because I did an interview with uh, a local publication, and it's in the it's in the piece. She wrote the whole thing that um, she had she had suggested that you know things in terms of race relations were better in the city, which I can't speak to your city specifically, but I gotta guess they're not. I really just gotta guess they're not. Um, and she also sort of prefaced the interview by telling me she felt bad for me. So like, I mean, that stuff comes up a lot. I get asked a lot, um, like why I'm funny? Like as if it's like a sickness or like it's, an, it's a mistake. Like something happened in the programming of my body and I was supposed to come out very sweet and meek and ended up coming out being like dicks, dicks, dicks. Like, as, like I don't know, that comes up a lot. The relatability question comes up very frequently. I often get asked about my tone, which, drives me fucking crazy. Like, it, that, that is maybe the most insulting question, and I think that's something, I'm, I'm sure you get it to some degree. I, feel, I think women generally get it, but certainly women of color get it on a level that is just unprecedented, um, of, that you don't get to say things like other people get to say them, because you have to be nice. I get people who scold me, men, especially on, well, not on, I quit Twitter, but when I was on Twitter, I would get men scolding me for swearing a lot. Oh, I love that. I love that. Does that happen to you? Mm. Yeah, but I mean... It's yeah. not how a lady talks. I don't really care. I mean, it is. I mean, it's one thing like, if you're doing it for broadcast, then yeah, I try to not <laughs> say like anus over and over again. But other than that, it's like, it's just free reign. But the, to uh, the tonal stuff, I think, is a lot about just sort of coming off as angry. They don't, people don't like that. Men and white women, I think, largely do not like that. They respond to it in a way as if you are taking something from them feels like a real ownership that you don't get to have angry. They own it. That makes me crazy. Sorry? It does hurt their feelings. You know what? Tough, tough titties, as they say. Well, he's out of a job now, so I guess I won. I don't know. Do you want to repeat the question? Yeah. Um, so after Trudeau won the election, this was, I guess, two years ago now. Yeah, give or take. Uh, he made this announcement that he was going to have a gender-neutral cabinet a cabinet is like a set of drawers. I don't really want to get in. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know enough about our political system to pretend like I can explain it to you. But he was going to have a gender neutral, uh, gender equal, sorry, cabinet. So 50-50 split. And I went on the CBC to talk about it, and uh, it was bad. And it was it was me and two other people who were arguing that. I I guess their argument was that it was bad that he wanted to have women in his cabinet. Because they didn't like, yeah, they don't. It's like the same argument against like affirmative action, well, like no quotas. They can't find six competent women. Yeah, like I, I don't, mean, I don't, even, I don't know what to tell you if you can't figure that shit out. And then like, yeah, it just re that one was weird. It wasn't so much the actual um, taping that was stressful. The taping was very bizarre. But those segments are like six minutes. 
they're live to tape. You're kind of confused the whole time. It's very hot. Um, there's like a tiny lady in a sleeveless dress asking you very quick questions, and then you're like, I gotta get out of here. Um, but it's always the response after. So this is what I mean about like Canadian audiences being hostile. No one gets madder at me than the CBC's audience. Like they unironically are ready to send me emails suggesting I believe in white genocide. That is the level of discourse they are having as the public broadcaster. I'm so glad I pay my taxes. Like that's, that's where, I'm at, where we're at with them. And by the way, one of the people who works at the CBC was one of the people involved in that appropriation prize. So that is like our liberal hippy dippy PBS, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, sisterhood pub a publisher. Um, but it's like those things are like they exist in a weird vacuum and they're, they're, you're never going to win an argument in those like TV panels and I've lost, I've lost the will to try to win. Um, but it's really after that then the people watch them on YouTube and I still get emails from that segment which was I think the first one I ever did for the CBC um, and I had just sort of gotten this new job. I was 24, 23, 24 and I did this thing and then it was just weeks of shit after. So it's not so much the thing that in terms of keeping my, t I, don't, I don't really care about keeping my tone generally, but like it was after not thinking I was insane. Everything's great. Do you all feel like you have a, a grasp of the cultural appropriation conversation? Because I know a lot of times people uh, yeah. don't, don't quite they get it. They seem to be nodding. <laughs> Does anybody not get it? Do you want to like give a? She doesn't get it, okay. So, um, about a month ago, this guy who, who works for uh, the, Writers Can the um, Writers Guild Union of Canada, they have, a mag they have a magazine they publish. This particular issue was supposed to be dedicated to indigenous writers. That was the point of, do you guys say indigenous here? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you, yeah, I don't fuck with that because I'm not sure about that one, but fine. Um, that's the word we tend to agree with in the North. But anyway, so in terms of indigenous writers um, in Canada, there are very few that are sort of given space. We just don't do it, which is all fucked up because we take their, we love to throw their history around and, you know, we're going we're gonna to drag it through with Canada 150 for sure. We're already doing it. But this magazine was supposed to be dedicated to that, speci that specific group, their work and their topics. The editor, who is a white person, wrote this piece... It was a letter from the editor in effect saying that he didn't believe cultural appropriation was a thing and he wanted, he, he said we should have appropriation prize for the person who can best appropriate another culture. So the argument is inherently flawed because cultural appropriation doesn't mean you're just writing fiction about people who aren't white. I would be fine with that. If you could write nuanced people of color in your books, that's great. But it's, it's, it's taking from a culture and sort of, I think it's profiting off of them in a way that they will never profit. This is why I get mad when I see like white girls wearing bindis. Because I didn't get to wear that when I was a kid and be cute. I didn't get that. I, st I don't get it now. I'd get stopped at the airport. So th that was the issue. He conflated it and pretended it was about fiction writers writing, you know, black and brown and indigenous characters into their books. There's a bunch of other stuff connected to this, one of them being that a very prominent Canadian author, Joseph Boyden, was found to have maybe stolen some of his work and might not be Indigenous, despite the fact that he was saying he was. I'm not really sure, honestly, where that landed, because it just sort of went away, because Canada, Canadian media is like five people. Um, and one of us is here, so I don't really know. <laughs> but um, 
so then after that, he got a lot of backlash. And part of the insult for that issue was that the issue was, de the, the magazine was dedicated to indigenous writers, and he distracted from them by writing this thing. No one knows what was in that magazine because we were all very busy write, writing about the stupid thing that he had written. So in the very issue dedicated to those people and their work, no one heard anything from them because we had to deal with this ding-dong who had written this thing. He realized he was wrong, he quit. Then all of these other editors for very large publications in the country were upset about it, I guess. You know, they throw the word witch hunt around, which is not what a witch hunt was or is, but fine. And then uh, they started basically saying, well, let's, you know, let's, let's do an appropriation prize. And that's when everything Solidarity kind of with off. that guy. With the guy who quit, yeah. Yeah. Not with the centuries of people yeah. not getting economic opportunities, totally. not being represented, not who we've a... Who we've shoved into land that is, you know, very far north or in remote regions where they can't get groceries and we don't, we don't, they don't have clean water. Like in terms of what's going on here in Flint, like that shit's been happening in parts of Canada for a very long time to indigenous people because we don't care. Like everybody loves Trudeau and I understand he's very hot and he owns at least five puka shell necklaces, but like he's also okaying the Keystone, which will disrupt water resources. Like there's, there's a lot, there's just, there's so much shit there. There's so much frustration for indigenous people in the country. And I'm not the person really to be talking about it cause I'm not, and I'm a settler like a lot of us who live in that country, but it seems petty what was going on with the appropriation prize. And it seems silly why people were so upset, but it was very emblematic of the way that we always thought these people talked about us. And then we finally had proof of it, that this is how they fucking talk about us. And it was so mean and just so nakedly cruel and so unnecessary. And it was one of those things where it was like, I'm giving my labor to you people so you can pay me $250 for a piece or you can give me 300 bucks to do a video or whatever else. And you are mocking my existence. And that's worse, I, th I would guess, if you're an indigenous person in the country and you're trying to work in media because they just don't give you any room. And I mean, then even when this broke, nobody had anybody to write about it because nobody has an indigenous person on staff. Yeah, I mean, like, even if there were people uh, who, were, who were ready and excited to hire indigenous people, there's so many roadblocks to even getting to the point sure. where you can pitch to, an, like, where you know the, a person to pitch or where you have, yeah. I don't know, I mean. And there's even that thing of, like, and I, I have, I've had this too, and it, I mean, I'm sure it'll come up again, where if you're not white, you end up sort of being the spokesperson for your people. They don't let you do anything else. And I imagine if you're an indigenous person anywhere right, working in media, maybe at some point you don't want to only write about that thing, but that's the only space we've given you. And I spent a long time only writing about brown people because it's the only thing I could get. And that, I don't know, that, honestly, that could shift. I don't know if it could go back to that. It might. But I mean, the other thing about this is there was so much fear about talking out against those editors because all of us, and us meaning people of color who are working in media or just consuming it or trying to get into it, are afraid of having our livelihoods taken away from us. Because my stuff can get taken, I know that. I'm not, like, I'm obsessed with myself. But my ego is not so big that I think that, like, it can't be taken. It can. And that was the other part of it is that we were just so fed up. And that's part of the mechanism. That's part of the design. Yeah. That's how people, that's how the system keeps you from oh, yeah. disrupting it. Um, all right. Well, on that optimistic note. Um, Everything's I think fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're on a book tour. You wrote an amazing book. Thanks. And um, thank you so much for coming to Seattle. Thank you. And to us. Thank you, Cole and Lindy West.
Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Sachi Kuhl read from her work and spoke to Lindy West at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on May 31st. Tune in again soon.